Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we hope you are enjoying this deep dive. What has become a way deeper dive into- This is the deepest of dives. Well, I just, I'm becoming so curious about everything, of all the people that I'm getting to interview is leading to more people to interview. Everybody's been so great with their time. It's it's and it's, it's been such awesome. a fascinating subject. It is absolutely so. This is this is I guess part five of our Lockheed Skunk Works deep dive episodes. And who do we have on this week? It is Meryl Tangesdahl. She's a military veteran, former director of inspections who served for the Air Force, uh, Inspector General. She is a retired pilot. She's she was a colonel. Her rank was colonel. Which the word always is always weird. It's, it looks like colonel, but it's colonel. <laughs> colonel Tangle. She served in the Iraq War and the War of Af- in Afghanistan. She was awarded a lot of different medals: Legion of Merit Medal, Defense Mater- Merit Meritorious Service Medal, and the Mer- Meritorious Service Medal. A bunch of different medals: Air Medals, medals all over the place. She was a U two pilot. Right. I was going to say most paramount of that for well, our story. For is, our story, yeah, is a U two pilot. So right. I wanted to bring her on to have her talk about flying a U two, and she's a modern U two pilot. So it's interesting. I wanted to get kind of a, a, a different perspective on some of these cool planes. So she's going to be coming out later to talk about her experience growing up, becoming a pilot. It's, it's a great story and, and really interesting. We also have uh, more content than what we're even airing here on our Patreon. That's right. Head over to patreon.com slash overcrest. For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to all this exclusive content. We have several interviews that... We're just we're generating so much content that I can't... I mean, there's no way to share it all here. Right. So we've put it up on, on Patreon. One of the interviews that I just put up there is Tony Bevacqua, who is the... Who was a, he was born in 1932 and was one of the first YouTube pilots. Wow. And that one is up on Patreon right now. So if you're liking all these interviews, it's like five bucks, man, $5. You can go get all that exclusive, exclusive content and support the show. That's right. Um, so before we dig into the YouTube as a plane and hear from Merrill, Yes. We want to touch on a little bit of history yeah, that I think the we U-2 should talk about played such a huge role in. One of the biggest roles for the U2, obviously, from the vibe I got from Meryl, I'm sh- it's a really big deal still, but she can't tell me. Okay. Obviously, we'll, okay. we'll find out all the things that the U2 did later when everything oh, right. was going on. I'm sure there's a lot of other things yes, we don't I, even know about. She's, she's like, ah, yeah. she couldn't really yeah. tell me, but because uh, she's very close to modern times flying these secret missions. Right, it hasn't been declassified. It has not been declassified yet. But now we know that the U-2 plane was really integral in figuring out what was going on during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. And this is shortly after the U-2 became operational in what, the late 60s? 53. It was 50. Well, no, that's when Castro came into power. Yeah. No, it, I was going to say that doesn't sound right on. at all. I yeah. Th- it's uh, 62. It's 19, okay. 1962. Yes. Which is right at the beginning of the yeah, U-2 Yeah. So it's service. very, very close to the inception of the U-2. And basically what happened was, I don't know if you want to talk about the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but Q, or, uh, the Russians decided, hey, it's imagine if, uh, <laughs> let's say you and I were not friends. Okay. okay. We're not friends. No. And we we talk a lot. Okay. Like maybe on the phone a little bit, but nobody knows that we no, talk. No, I feel like this is an, a closer analogy. It would be one of your Twitter fights that you get into. You know what? It, it, I actually talk to you. I uh-huh. don't go get, get in fights on Twitter. Yeah, I talk to you, but through my wife. Okay. That's, that's what this conversation goes. And it's always kind of awkward. We're kind of enemies. And yeah. eventually I decide I want you to die. 
Okay. So what I do uh-huh. is uh, I I buy the house across the street from you, <laughs> okay. and I set up a bunch of guns in the windows without you just, knowing, just pointing at me. Yeah, and eventually you find out, right? Yeah, you find yeah. out, and and obviously this is not okay. No, and not then at you all. say you say, "Hey, nation of Chris, this is really bad. Yeah. You cannot have." Yeah. Uh, Barrett 50 cal rifle is pointed at my house. Right. You could hurt me. You could hurt my family. Right. And what do I do? Jake, a nation of Jake. Yeah. <laughs> They're just defensive. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah, Don't worry about it. You're just protecting my house You're from you. You're just protecting the house from me. Well, you didn't have as, to buy the house, Jake. No. no. You didn't have to buy well, it. Uh, we were here you, first, though. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> Clearly, we were here first before you decided and to move in. That is everything you needed to know about the Q and missile crisis. Right. And, and I think I, we should probably get into a little, little yeah, farther let's, than let's that. Let's start at the beginning. And so it and starts. this is critical because the U-2 plane was absolutely integral to the outcome and the inception of the Cuban Missile Crisis, finding out what was going on there yep. and the eventual resolution as well and making sure that, hey, those those Barrett 50 cals aren't in the neighbor's window anymore. Right. It, it was very Because important. I sent my little remote control drone over yes. and I saw the Barretts. So now we yes. have our Barretts pointed at your Barretts yeah. and you know how it ends? Yep. I just perked, A bunch of I people parked. almost running into each other in the street between right. our two right. houses. Exactly. There was, was almost say, a giant accident. I, I, I parked you into your driveway. <laughs> it's basically you how we leave. resolved this. That's literally how we resolved. It's amazing. Awesome. Okay, so in July of 1953, Chris, the Cuban Revolution was led by the son of a rich Spanish immigrant. Okay. So his name was, of course, Fidel Castro. Big jerk. He was a big big jerk. jerk, But what I love is I, for whatever reason, I have this idea of Fidel Castro like coming up through like poverty and that's why he embraces yeah, communism yes, and everything else. Yeah. No, his parents are rich and from Spain and he goes to law school at the University of Havana. And oh, like, so what you're saying is that some law school elitist is now in charge of a country. Right. Got it. Yeah, that's... Well, yeah, so Fidel Castro, by leading the movement in a guerrilla war against the Batista's forces, Castro assumed military and political power as Cuba's prime minister. Batista was the previous leader of Cuba. Okay, so, so do we know why Fidel Castro hated this guy? Yeah, but I didn't want to get into it. Okay. We have to talk about the crisis. Okay, not, I'm sorry. Not, I'm I, just very curious. I could go very deep, Yes, and you can Google this as well if you're interested, but okay. we're talking about the U2 and now the context I'm sorry. of it. Go okay. ahead. Okay, so he seizes full control of the country in 1959, and he converts Cuba into a one-party socialist state under the Communist Party. And with the Cold War in full swing at this time between Soviet Union and the United States. Last week when we introduced SR-71 and I was talking about communism and everything like that. And I was saying that the Soviets like to fight war via proxy because they couldn't do it on their own. They love these little satellite states that, you know, this is a revolutionary time in that country. This is is a perfect example of the way that, that communism or the USSR leveraged revolution happening in other countries. They didn't do this on their own. Fidel Castro did not overthrow the government in Cuba by himself. Um, he had help from the communist government. Yeah. For sure. And, and this is exactly what the communists did. Right. And definitely after the fact. So the Soviet Union was quick to align with Castro government, being the first and only communist state in the Western Hemisphere. It's a new best friend. It's also hugely important as a strategic position for the Soviets because Cuba is literally in our backyard. So while Castro received economic aid from the Soviets, the Soviets had access to a military position just 90 miles from U.S. soil. You don't realize how close Cuba is. It is. Well, they make it over here on uh, 
rafts made of tires and welded and up Chevys. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, it's Chevy not that yeah. yeah. So with the danger of the Soviets right in our backyard, the CIA was quick to launch covert intelligence missions to monitor the threat. And on October 14th, 1962, Major Richard Heiser flew a Lockheed U-2 over Cuba on a high-altitude reconnaissance mission. The photos captured by the U-2 revealed Soviet SS-4 medium-range ballistic missiles being assembled for installation. This kicked off the events that took us right to the brink of total nuclear destruction. Now, these missiles could reach DC. I mean, Easily. this is this is They could actually reach all the way up to basically the uh the northern um Well, my point is is that they can hit anywhere in the United States. They can reach DC. They're right there. They can yes. reach out and touch us. It's yeah. It was a bad deal. October 22nd, 1962, President John F. Kennedy broadcast a special message to the nation from his office in the White House. Here is President Kennedy as he delivered that message bearing on recent events in Cuba. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Upon receiving the first preliminary hard information of this nature, last Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., I directed that our surveillance be stepped up. And by surveillance, he means the U-2. The U-2. And to say this situation was delicate would be a massive understatement, Chris. President Kennedy formed a group of special advisors and officials in the White House known as the XCOM, or Executive Committee. For nearly two weeks... They then played out various scenarios, considering everything from a bombing attack on Cuba to a full-scale invasion of the country with ground forces. The problem is... We look at it, we go back and we look at it in the hindsight of, what was it, 13 days? Right, it was 13 yes, it days was long. 13 days. We look back at it and go, oh yeah, well this is the things that they did. Yeah, but imagine it was, just, being it was like, a short little... Like, imagine yeah, it was being on day two. You have no idea how long this is going to last. Nope. You have no idea what they're going to do. You have no idea if they're going to react in a military way, whether conventional or not. You have no idea what's going on. Well, that's just it. Because an aggressive military attack like that on a Soviet-aligned country could easily have triggered a nuclear response. And an act that thanks to our policy of mutually assured destruction, would be catastrophic to humanity itself. Chris, in later years, researchers would estimate that the U.S. and Soviet forces possessed enough atomic weaponry to exterminate humanity 690 times over. That seems reasonable. This sudden, clandestine decision to station strategic weapons for the first time outside of Soviet soil is a deliberately provocative and unjustified change in the status quo, which cannot be accepted by this country. If our courage and our commitments are ever to be trusted again by either friend or foe. So 
Rather than trying to escalate the situation by taking some sort of military action, Kennedy and his XCOM came up with a more measured solution. The U.S. Navy established a blockade around Cuba to prevent the Soviets from delivering additional missiles and military equipment. In addition, Kennedy delivered an ultimatum that the existing missiles must be removed. However, on the morning of October 24th, a Soviet ship bound for Cuba approached the line of the U.S. blockade. And before this, I mean, they were writing letters to each other. Yeah. This is, this there is, was basically a secret channel that was going on that wasn't public. And these are declassified. They're really interesting. I suggest you read them if you're a nerd. If you're not a nerd, basically nerd. What, what it was was uh, Khrushchev saying, these are defensive. You've got you've got stuff going on in Europe. Right. We have every this right the to same put these thing. here. You know, this is, this is just, this is war. Yes. Suck it up. Well, and he tried to first sell it that these were just surfaced air missiles for defending against, like, plane attacks. Right, and the thing he didn't know is how much we could see. Right. He did not know. I, obviously, Kennedy wasn't like, well, we've got a U-2 plane that's got, you know, 50 megapixels. And, <laughs> and, you know what I mean? He didn't, I don't think it was megapixels. Well, that's, whatever. It we, we have, like, eight miles worth of film that shows right. exactly that these what missiles are enormous. And we can read the serial numbers on these things. Yeah, exactly. Well, it wasn't quite that no, good. But, but they, they knew see, exactly what they were. They, they were could the see the size. Pores. They could reference and see the size. I've seen the pictures. Yep. It's very obvious. It's very clear. Yes. And obviously, Khrushchev didn't know how what the technology we had because if he knew we had u2 planes that could go over there and look at his nostrils he wouldn't have done it in the first place i'm right. guessing because he i don't think he thought he was going to get busted so easily probably not yeah. and obviously they're still shipping more stuff into cuba right so here we have this blockade we're like okay we're just basically going to quarantine cuba rather than having a military offensive we're just gonna we're gonna block them off we're gonna we're gonna block their driveway right they can't right. get out no one can get in and here soviet Ships are coming over with more missiles. That had left weeks earlier. Right. So right. who knows if they even know what the heck's going yeah, on. Yeah, they're just like, hey, whoa, whoa, so, what are all these, what is this American ships? Oh, right. shit. An attempt by the Soviets to breach this blockade would likely have sparked a military confrontation that could have quickly escalated to a nuclear exchange. And Chris, do you remember the movie 13 Days with yeah, Kevin with Costner. Costner? Yeah, that was released in 2000. Pretty it portrays how tense this specific situation really was. Those ships are definitely stopping. Some are turning around. Are they stopping? I don't know what the hell they're doing. Admiral? Admiral, what's happening? Yes, sir, they are stopping. <laughs> Woo! They stopped. There was other things. From all around. The ships are stopping. There were other things going on other than the blockade with the U-2 planes, right? Right. So although the events at sea basically signaled that war would, for the moment, be averted, the missiles still remained in Cuba and were an ever-present threat. So three days later, Air Force Major Rudolph Anderson Jr. piloted his Lockheed U-2 14 miles above Cuban airspace. Then, out of the blue, two surface-to-air missiles rocketed into the sky. One exploded near the U-2, sending shrapnel piercing through the cockpit, shredding Anderson's pressurized flight suit and helmet, likely killing him instantly. And this kind of was the inception of, wow, we need something fast, right? right? I mean, this, exactly. this incident was... Because guess what? These U-2s, they fly really high, 80,000 feet, They're slow. but they They're can slow. still be yeah. shot down. Easily. So the 35-year-old pilot is considered the sole U.S. combat casualty of the entire Cuban Missile Crisis. And news of the airstrike reached the White House nearly immediately. Quote, 
I thought it was the last Saturday I would ever see, recalled U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. President Kennedy himself remarked that we are now in an entirely new ball game. This was a Cold War beforehand, Chris, and now all of a sudden we have a Soviet... Oh, sounds pretty hot to me. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's just it. It's getting very, very hot. It's and hot it's in here. It's literally warm. It's very warm. in our backyard. Military leaders overwhelmingly urged Kennedy to launch airstrikes against Cuba's air defense the following morning. So they're basically like, look, we need to draw a hard line in the sand. They shot down one of our guys. That's an American pilot that just died because of Soviet hands. Yep. So they have blood on their hands. Exactly. So all the leaders are basically telling Kennedy, look, you got to you got to launch an airstrike. We got to go hard to do something. Yeah. However, the president, because it was the mentality back then that the Soviets responded to strength. Right. That's that. that, That's a line in the movie. Actually, I went through like most of the movie actually (laughs) to find quotes and stuff. And yeah, it was like the, the Soviets only understand one word and that word is force. Right. So they're all telling him you need to respond in like. And luckily he did not. Kennedy had restraint. Um, the president suspected that Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev actually may not have authorized the downing of the plane at all. This was just an independent Cuban act, and he didn't want to abandon diplomacy just yet. Quote, it isn't the first step that concerns me, but both sides escalating to the fourth or fifth step, and we don't go to the sixth step because there is no one around to do so, he told his advisors. On October 26, Khrushchev sent a message to Kennedy in which he offered to remove the Cuban missiles in exchange for a promise that U.S. leaders would not invade Cuba. The following day, the Soviet leader sent a letter proposing that the USSR would dismantle its missiles in Cuba if the Americans removed their missile installments in Turkey. Now, officially, the Kennedy administration accepted only the first terms of the message, but American officials did also agree to withdraw their nation's missiles from Turkey. On the secret phone. Publicly, we wanted to basically say we have a hard front. We're not negotiating with those communist bastards. Right. But we knew under the table we had to give a little bit in order to get a little bit. Right. right? So officially, yeah, the American officials did agree to do this. And when U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy personally delivered the message to the Soviet ambassador in Washington on October 28th, the crisis officially drew to a close. Imagine that walk. Get out of your little black Lincoln. Well, I would be like, your little do I have to run? Like, how close are we? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, are they, is there some guy with his finger on the button going to send the first nuke over if I don't get there in time? Yeah, there's definitely extra underpants in whatever briefcase he was carrying around. No kidding. All right. Well, now that we have a little background on the Cuban Missile Crisis and just how important of a role the U-2 played in this, let's talk to Merrill herself and hear firsthand what that was like. Before we do, though, let's talk about our sponsor, Petrolbox. Yes, let's do it. Petrolbox is a monthly subscription service made just for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right to your doorstep. Now, Chris, you already got your petrol box. I did. It's Mine got a great shirt on it. is arriving today. I uh-huh. was upset, and I even talked to John, the owner. I was like, hey, Chris I always get him. mine before Chris. Where is mine? And he said, oh, yeah, it's going to come today. So yeah. he even looked up. had a great number. shirt. It was a, it's a, a Formula One helmet with all the Formula One champions kind of in different words. Yeah, it's, and what's cool neat. is usually they have like exclusive partnerships with Petrolbox. Yeah. So the, the stuff you get, you can't just go out and buy. Yeah. So it is a really 
cool uh, collection of gear. And there's two different levels to choose from. You have the Petrox Basic, that costs less than 20 bucks a month. And of course, the Petrox Premium gets even more stuff for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. All right. I want to remind everybody to subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you've been hearing the last few episodes, please leave us a five-star view. We would really appreciate that. All right. On with the interview. Meryl Tengestall, it's my honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming to hang out with us. All right. Thank you for having me. Really yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. So I went and did a little bit of digging on you and finding out, I always like to know where people come from. And I think that really, as we, as we all get on in our lives, where we came from is integral to where we are. And you grew up in the Bronx as a little girl and ended up being a pilot in the U.S. military. And I think that's really, really unique. How does how does that little girl uh, end up aspiring to be you know, an astronaut, end up in a U-2 plane? So when I was, uh, you know, I was born and raised in the Bronx, as you pointed out. Um, I lived, by the age of seven, uh, my mom had divorced, so I lived in a single-parent household. And at, at the same time, I was, I remember definitely being into a lot of science fiction, Star Trek in particular. Sure. So at the age of seven, I said, hey, I, I want to be an astronaut. I want to go explore a uh, new world and boldly go. And that was the route I decided to, you know, that was the thing I decided to do. What was your, what did so your mom say to this when you were, when you were growing up, you tell her you want to be an astronaut. Was she like, yeah, you can do that. Um, you know, my mom didn't say great or bad in any way. Uh, growing up in the seventies, you know, there's, I think a level of expectation of women's roles back then. Sure. And for me, my, my thoughts were a little different and most people really ignored it. Probably they thought it was something that I would grow out of. And I never did. As you got older, <laughs> when you're seven years old, you don't really realize that that's such a moonshot, right? You don't really understand that. Oh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a pilot. This is gonna be great. Was there an age at which you went, wow, this is, this is really challenging, but I can still do this. No, there there was never a point. I I had in my mind at when I said I was going to be an astronaut, and I declared that to myself. I already started working out what type of framework I was going to, how I was going to get there. So you know, you look at in this case Star Trek. You know, people are in go to Starfleet Academy. Mm -hmm. um, as I'm reading books and getting better with my reading, um, I know that I'm going to have to go to school probably college. You know, they, they were all in shape, even with William Shatner wearing those girdles back in the days or Spanx as we call them now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, I knew I had to be in some level of physical condition. I think we just outed, fine, outed William playing. Shatner for wearing Spanx. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think at this age, he does not care. He, yeah, he's had a great not. successful is definitely secure. He's all good. <laughs> yes, he's good with it. Um, and then from there, um, I knew I, I, you know, I played sports. I knew math and science had to be the focus. I mean, look, Spock was the first officer, and I knew I had to be a pilot. So those were just the basic concepts in my mind at seven years old. Um, and it didn't need to be any more intricate than that because I just started that journey and just focused on those things. 
Right, right. Was there anyone that inspired you that you kind of looked up to when you were going through this process of discovering everything you needed to do? You know, I've I've had a lot of mentors throughout my my life. Um, all you know, male, female, um, black, white. Um, the first, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, I look up to my mom. She worked her butt off as a single parent and provided. Um, a lot of things for me, um, a lot of opportunities. And I, and I got to see her firsthand work incredibly hard, um, taking the shifts that she had to take night shifts, you know, weeks I was grandmother or my aunt. So, um, she had this level of work ethic that was amazing. And in between, she liked to have fun. Um, you know, she liked to bowl. She liked to, you know, occasionally hang out with people if she had the opportunity. So, you know, my second home was a, was a, a bowling alley, believe it or not. Right. Um, a lot of people don't know that I grew up in a bowling alley and I was on bowling teams, bowled, uh, you know, a lot of tournaments on the weekend. So that's first and foremost. Um, when I got a little older and I went to an after school center, when I was in school, um, elementary, junior high school, uh, the lady who ran the after school center, she was a teacher and she knew my uh, fascination with Star Trek and she would provide me with a lot of Star Trek books to read. So, um, you know, at one point I was probably reading a book or two a day, uh, you know, going through the stories and learning all about the Star Trek characters. So did you graduate and high school teacher, and then just walk straight into the, the academy? Um. You mean, as in, in terms of just enlisting? I mean, was it were, were you that set that once you were done with high school, you were just like, well, that's it. I'm going to the academy, or did you go to end up going to college first, or how did that end up playing out? Um, well, I knew I was going to go to college, so um, this lady would give my mom a book of these different programs. These now we call them STEM. At that time, uh, they were science, technology type programs, and my mom looked at this book and she looked at me. She's like you're going to pick one and pick one of these programs. So when I was uh, a sophomore in high school, I ended up going to University of Binghamton for a summer for a couple of weeks uh, for uh, a science technology entry program where they did a lot of science and research. And if you did well enough, they would invite you back the second year and your junior year for research with a professor. So uh, I was invited back a second summer and I did electrical engineering research with a professor in that department. And that's what kind of led me on the path of, yeah, I need to go to college. I need to be some type of engineer. Right. And so when I graduated high school, I went to, uh, I applied to a lot of schools, but I ended up going to the, a private school called the university of new Haven and uh, majored in electrical engineering now, and got my, my undergrad in now, that. Now we don't have time to talk about everything you flew. I mean, you've, from what I could tell, you flew a lot, a lot of things, helicopters, you had just trainers and just tons and tons of stuff. But eventually you got to fly the U-2. And it's a very unique plane. It's a unique choice, I think. I think, think it takes a special type of person to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to get in that thing by myself and go over denied territory or just fly around and surveil things. It, it seems like a very unique choice. Yeah, I I laugh. I I tell people jokingly that to be a YouTube pilot, you have to be as, as smart as we are as a community. You have to be a little not quite right to sit in an <laughs> aircraft by yourself for hours on end, and not have a bathroom to go to, 
eating food out of a tube and putting your body in physiological conditions that um, are not, you know, are not comfortable, that can, you know, decompression sickness, you're exposing yourself, at least back in the time when I was flying. So you have to be a glutton for punishment to want to fly in this aircraft, but I would tell you the community uh, is great. The brotherhood, the sisterhood is great. The aircraft is incredibly challenging. Um, I've seen this aircraft take someone with a few hundred hours, and if the person is not paying attention, it will make them look like it was their first day flying it. So um, it's it's an aircraft that I tell people it may not go supersonic, but it will kill you faster than anything if you um, become complacent in it and you do not respect it. What is it about um, the plane so, that makes makes it feel that way as a pilot? Is there what what are the characteristics that make it dangerous in that way? So um, this aircraft is a bicycle landing gear configuration. So one wheel behind the other, like a bicycle. It's not a tricycle landing gear like your commercial airliners or or your jets. Therefore, you have a big main gear or a main gear in the front and a small tail wheel in the back. To land this aircraft, you actually have to stall the aircraft at two feet. So if you stall too high, um, you have the odds of you damaging sensors or the aircraft itself is pretty high. If you don't stall the aircraft and land on the main gear, you're going to bounce up to an altitude that's too high and then stall it anyway. Right. So your, your landing game has to be on point all the time. Um, for, uh, and then when you get into no flap territory, different configurations, it becomes a lot more difficult and a lot more dangerous, uh, especially in the no flap. I think for every knot that you are fast, uh, for your landing speed, you will you will float approximately one thousand feet down the runway. So, and these things know, are excellent Force gliders. Nice I was reading that one guy had a flame out and and he glided like obviously elevation helps, but three hundred miles. Right, the the glide ratio is pretty high. Um, you know, it's, I I don't remember the numbers, but I, I thought it was maybe somewhere. Uh, it's it's a pretty high ratio. Yeah. yeah. So how does this <laughs> How does it feel to fly a plane that is the same plane that flew over Cuba during the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and collected nuclear data over the Soviet Union with all the particulates and everything that they were trying to test? I mean, this plane, I mean, the SR-71 is great, you know, wonderful plane, but it seems like in the in the halls of history, the U-2 really covered a lot of ground. It has done a lot of great things, and that seems like it could almost be like a responsibility to live up to that. Yeah, agreed. I mean, you know, I think you talked about the about Cuba, um, these Gary Powers, mm-hmm. you know, the most popular person in the in YouTube history. Um, I mean, Steven Spielberg made a a movie out of it, and you know, part of that was Gary Powers as well as the other student uh, or the lawyer who broke the deal. Um, it's it's a huge, tremendous honor, and it's an testament. It's a testament to. Uh, Kelly Johnson, who, you know, designed this phenomenal aircraft that has has flown for over 65 years and has changed with the time. So sometimes you say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, this old dog is pulling out trick after trick after trick. And, you know, you want the U2 to do something. I mean, it's like a plug in. It's a plug and play system. It's very versatile. So, um, you know, I don't think the U2 is going to be 
going anytime soon. It does things that other aircraft cannot and other countries can't even duplicate. And we're talking 65 years later. So, I mean, it's um, incredible. Some people say, hey, you're, yeah, it's incredible. You're still flying the U2. And I go, I, I say, yeah, they're still flying the U2. And they're like, that's amazing. I'm like, you don't even know the half. I mean, the frame <laughs> looks the same. And inside, it's, you know, I have a 65 Ford Falcon. And, you know, that engine, the 289 engine is, is off the chain. Why would you want to replace that? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, so do you ever, uh, do you ever feel fear up there by yourself? I mean, it's gotta, when I'm alone and I'm out driving, I drive a lot. You know, this is something I do. It's my, it's my favorite pastime is to drive. And sometimes you you're alone in your mind. You start to spend too much time with yourself and your mind starts to run away. And I'm just wondering, do you, what kind, what's going through your mind up there? Is it fear? Or are you just do you daydream and start thinking about other things on your way to your mission location? Or what do you think about up there? Yeah, I, I, there is no fear when I'm flying the U2. Uh, I think I explained one time there's uncomfortable moments if there's turbulence, but flying alone, I'm totally comfortable in quite happy with myself. I'm an only child. So you could give me a box and a crayon and I will be totally happy for a couple of weeks. And the U2 um, being in my own thoughts, um, if I'm transiting out to um, a mission area, um, I, I quite enjoy it. It's very serene to me. You can't, you know, you hear the quiet hum of the engine, you hear yourself breathing, you may hear a radio call here and there. Um, but uh, I quite enjoyed looking at the view and seeing the curvature of the earth or at nighttime, seeing all the stars, infinite stars unobstructed by lighting pollution. It just, it gives the sensation that, you know, life is, you know, life is fragile. Um, the universe is huge and every problem that we have is just so small in comparison and, you know, just puts things in perspective for me. So if I'm thinking about something that day, it just gives me that moment to think and appreciate the things that I have. Um, if I'm flying a mission, I'm in the mission. So I'm in that, I'm in that moment. I'm talking to, uh, ground troops or, or I'm talking to the mission on team commander. Um, and we're getting things done. So, um, yeah, I've never, there's never been any fear in the YouTube. Um, it's been pretty reliable for me. Um, I've always respected it and have just flown it the way it needs to be flown. So they say that this plane flies 24, seven, 365. That's the, uh, that's the rumor, right? As a civilian, we're like, there's always a U-2 plane up there looking at something. Is that true? Is there always a U-2 plane up there looking at something? I would say that there's always surveillance being done. <laughs> yeah, um, that's There's fair. always reconnaissance being done. That's fair. And um, the U-2 is part of that equation. So for how long that is, we don't get into talking about that. Yeah, that's, so, um, that's fine. That's fine. That's fair. That's fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> so there's been, uh, um, you. I was looking at, you know, obviously you've got a wiki page and everything, and I was looking at all of your commendations, and there's just, there's a ton. I mean, just well-decorated. And 
such an honor to be talking to you about this. Thank you. And um, I saw a couple that stuck out to me is is the Air Medal, which is uh, it was created in 1942 and is awarded for single acts of hero- heroism or meritorious achievement while participating in aerial flight. Can you tell us what was behind the Air Medal? Um, the Air Medals were for the operations, um, the combat missions that I did in OEF and OIF, so Operation Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom. So it was just a culmination of uh, the flights that I had done out there on uh, numerous um, deployments. Um, was there one that was so, very memorable to you that sticks out on any of those missions that were from over there that you can talk about? Huh. There, I, I think one, I, I talked about a little bit, one of my first missions um, over Afghanistan, I think it was my first mission. And, um, and there was a lot of activity that day and um, a lot of surveillance gathered. And the result was, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, of the enemy losing some people. So I, you know, coming back, I was, you know, I felt, I felt good that I, I was part of the chain of events that happened. Right. Um, and I, and I remember my commander wanted me to talk to some people (laughs) and I just, and I, and I'm that type of person that, um, you know, we have a job to do. We have a mission to do. I don't, I don't think about it too much. And I was just like, can I just get some sleep, please? (laughs) Just get ready for the next day. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, (laughs) cause it's, it's one of those things you don't think about, um, as you know, when you're, when you're doing missions, you're just, you're just there to, you're there to do the grind. You're not there to enjoy the moment or, or look at what happened. You're like, let's go, let's get this done. Because right. you know, there's a lot of people who rely on you. So you want to be in your best. You want to be at your best every time. Absolutely. And I always think of, do you ever feel like you can't, out of touch with what's going on with the combat on the ground. Obviously you're, you're doing your job and you're doing exactly what you're meant to do. But I feel like it would just be like these guys down there, if the pressure of having to do your job correctly to make sure things go right from them must be off the charts because they're really depending on you up there. I mean, your level of reconnaissance and what you're doing for the guys on the ground is, is paramount. It's so important. It It is, it's huge. And it's, it's a, you know, there's, it's a pressure, but I think when you know the team of people that you're working with, you know, I'm the one up there flying or the YouTube class, the one up there flying, but it takes a whole team of people and it takes analysts that, uh, you know, that take that product and disseminate it from um, the DGS. Um, when you know and you put your trust in those people that are helping you as part of this team, you're not really worried. The pressure there's pressure there, but to perform, but you know that the people who are supporting you are doing a phenomenal job, whether it's the Intel officers, whether it's the maintenance folks, whether it's the um, physiological support personnel that are doing it. So all these guys are professionals um, all the time. And it it takes that pressure off because they're supporting you hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a huge team to get it done. It always kind of gets, it always kind of gets boiled down to the, the, the pilot, right? The pilot in the plane doing the job. But from what I can tell, what it takes to get that U-2 plane up there, it's it's a big deal. Oh, yeah. 
Huge, huge. I mean, you know, you got your contractors and you got your government support, um, you know, from Lockheed Martin to Raytheon to BAE. So it's um, just to name a few. Um, right. So when someone else hears this and they get upset, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to leave you out. <laughs> sure, sure. And you also received the Legion of Merit. And from what I can tell, that's the that's a very prestigious uh, commendation. Was there a story that surrounded grabbing the Legion of Merit? The um, Legion of Merit was uh, at the end when I left the Pentagon. So my last job in the Pentagon was uh, the director of inspections for the inspector general. So um, during that time, uh, there was just a lot of, um, in terms of the Air Force, switching over to the way they did inspections uh, throughout the Air Force from conventional to nuclear. Um, It was a very big undertaking. And again, uh, we had, you know, I had a great group of people on my staff that worked for me um, to, to get that out there and a lot of coordination uh, for those who work in the, as my friends say, the five-sided pleasure palace. Sometimes that's not always easy. And, um, <laughs> so I'm and, sure that uh, name is ironic, just like Paradise of- Ranch is ironic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's uh, that's what that was for. Now, you've returned to civilian life. You're doing uh, physical yes. training for people, physiology work. It seems like. Do you miss um, being up there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, being converting to a civilian. First of all, you know, civilian like I will say, um, being a civilian now, it's it's different. It's, it's definitely a transition uh, because the military way of life is very, is much more disciplined. Um, maybe, I don't want to say not as touchy-feely, um, but working with civilians are, are just different and uh, there's good and bad. I, I don't see the camaraderie as much as I do in the milita- uh, when I was in the military. Right. Um, I enjoy the personal training aspect because I like to motivate and inspire people. I like to use fitness as that conduit. Um, just based on my life, I've able to talk to a lot of young adults who want to join the military and we're able to go into a workout setting and I get to wear them out. And through that, through tiredness, through watching their endurance, I'm able to talk to them and get to the root of some things about who they are and to help them be successful. If they want to go to OCS, they want to enlist, um, whatever they want to do, even if it's none of the above, whatever their next step in their career is. Uh, I think, you know, my personal opinion is that nowadays we have a lot of younger folks that may be a little lost in their way um, on whatever journey they're on. Sometimes they need a little mentorship and direction. And I had a lot of that when I was growing up. So I like to provide it now, but just in a different fashion. So speaking of the younger generation being a little bit lost, I, I, like I told you off air, we've, I've got daughters that are, are six and seven. Is there anything that you can say that you'd like to say to little girls out there that might inspire them to pursue, pursue their dreams from such a young age and follow it all the way through? I mean, at that age, just like me, whatever you like and whatever you, you know, I don't, I don't care if it's you're watching a show about animals and you want to be a vet you know, start trying to be around animals more, maybe volunteering at a, um, 
a shelter or just, you know, getting on the internet because a lot of people like going on YouTube and subscribing to some channels with vet channels. For, for parents to be able to see that in their children, you have to think, how can you help um, cultivate those desires into something more? Um, how do you help kind of gently nudge them in the direction that, they, that they're interested in going? If a kid likes playing with trucks all day, you know, how do you take them to one of those, um, I forgot what they're called, they're like Legoland, where you can get behind like a, a big, uh, when COVID is over, yeah. you know, a big dump truck or something to kind of, to kind of see if they really like it. Right. Um, you know, I have a six-year-old, I have a six-year-old foster daughter who, when she first came into this house, she thought being a doctor was too hard. Mm. Now she talks about being a veterinarian or a pet groomer. So, um, you know, parent involvement is key and paramount, especially now that a lot of people are in for COVID. It should be a time you should kind of reconnect with your kids and find out what what sparks their interest. Yeah, it's it's all about pulling that thread and helping them along. I think I think that's what it's that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Hey, so why don't you tell us a little yeah, bit about this the, book that you're writing? So, I'm working on a book. Uh, we'll have. It'll be finished in March, and it's just going to be, it's going to talk about my life from A to Z, growing up in the Bronx, uh, getting, going into the Navy first, because that was my uh, first branch of service. I love the Navy uh, tremendously. Um, transferring over to the Air Force, which I also love, because they treated me very well, as even as a Navy implant, and then how I use those, those skills and those leadership skills and how do I transfer that to what I'm doing now? Um, for most people who don't know, I, I was, I'm on a reality show um, that's airing right now, Tough as Nails. So I'm using that also as a platform to help motivate and inspire people. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. You know, I always love hearing these. And thank you so much to, to Meryl for coming on, obviously. I love hearing these stories of, of growing up and what inspires somebody to become an elite, right? Sure. And I don't mean like elite, like she's better than everybody else, even though kind of, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of is. Yeah. I just, someone that really had, 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 I mean, all these people we're talking to have grit and she had it. And I, I asked her, so did you ever think that you couldn't do No, nope. Never thought I couldn't, never really? thought I wouldn't Never. I mean, it was just. Always, the I was on the prize the whole time, and that really is something to look up to. It's something to look up to. Let's take a minute to talk about Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source for professional detailing compounds and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product because guess what? They're using it on their own cars, so you can trust it. They truly are great products. It's simple, foolproof, two-step process. It's easy and gives an amazing finish. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code Overcrest. I can't wait to polish up my Vespa. Some no, old, you got to keep, I thought you're keeping all the patina. I, I know I am. But can I you can, polish patina? It's got glossy white paint. That is, that will be pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah and you can up. use this stuff on any finish. Uh, use the discount code Overcrest. Like I said, it's good not only on ObertCarCare.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. All right, guys, we appreciate you hanging out with us. We will see you on 
Friday, I That's believe. Right. And uh, next week we have a couple F-117A pilots coming out. Yes, the Nighthawk. The Nighthawk. That's uh, going to be episode six in this whole crazy deep dive. Or as uh, how most pilots uh, think of it as the, or the, or the original pilots think, the Have Blue. Have Blue, yeah, was the actual predecessor to the Nighthawk. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Great stories. We had a pilot I interviewed earlier today. Um, it, it's great hearing him talk about going in a desert storm and how everything works and the armaments that they had in Baghdad and everything like that. It's amazing. It's a great story. I can't I, wait to share it with My you favorite analogy that he said is you're basically invisible, but you do have to be careful because even if you're invisible standing in your neighbor's front lawn with the sprinkler on, you can still get wet. Yeah, you still, that was pretty good. All right, we'll see you guys on Friday. Take care. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Thank you.